0: Welcome to Ice Ice Beta, a podcast about ice climbing, mixed, and don't call me dry tooling guy, guy. And I'm your host, Aaron Gary. In today's episode with Tom Burney, we talk about the psychology of performance and the ethics of developing a new dry tooling crag. Tom doesn't love labels, and definitely don't call him the dry tooling guy. But to help paint a picture, he's a mixed climber from Seattle who especially enjoys questing, runs the barn, a dry tooling gym, helps to develop Wayne's World, a dry tooling crag and is a former high-level collegiate athlete and World Cup competitor in dry tooling. Through all of his experiences, he's been fascinated by the psychology of learning, training, and performance, especially as it relates to exploring choss piles or competing. As Tom quotes in our chat, you don't rise to your level of expectation, but fall to your level of training. Interested in how to raise your own level of training and rise to the occasion? Listen on. But first a few messages from our sponsors. Blue ice is the best kind of ice, and also my choice when it comes to fast and light ice climbing gear. The aerolights go in like hot knife through butter, and their climbing packs hit the sweet spot between function and lightweight. Designed to get to the point in the Alpine, the gear is tested by mountain professionals between the Alps and the Wasatch. If you're looking to get to the point too, and with a little less weight in your kit, check out Blue Ice's gear at blueice.com or your favorite local retailer. There aren't many companies that make climbing-specific apparel in the U.S., but Northwest Alpine does, and have been since 2010. They started with simple principles to create functional and durable clothing for people who get after it in the Alpine. Today, the Black Spider is a lightweight grid fleece hoodie for moving fast in the mountains, while the Fortis line is made from fabric spun with ultra-high molecular weight polyethylene fibers so you can tackle project after project after project. To learn more about their products, head to nwalpine.com. On today's episode, we're giving away Tom's front points. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, tons of
1: front points. So come get them. Uh, Some are used, some are absolutely brand new. Also willing to give away a pair of gnomics for anyone that successfully renames the sport of dry tooling and the name sticks. Mm. If the name sticks, I will give you a pair of gnomics. There you go. They could be yours. Just rename it. Many people have tried and failed.
0: Are there parameters to this giveaway? Like, must uh, submit inquiry by <laughs> end of year? Or...
1: You know, that, that's, it's good to establish parameters on something. Um, yeah, I mean, how do you know it sticks? I mean, it. you just stop seeing dry tooling. and you see this new term emerge and people using it actively. So it's a little hard to gauge, but I, I feel pretty liberal about giving away a pair of Nomex to somebody who successfully renames it with good adoption rate. Um, and that should be fairly self-evident. But um, yeah. there's, there's no timeline on that. Well, let's, I can't say that because I don't know where I'm going to be. I might be dead. Uh, I don't know where I'll be. I might be somewhere else. How's that? Um, let's say five years. Five-year challenge. Yeah.
0: At at some unknown point in the future, generally within five years, yeah. we'll circle back with you, Tom. And so just on the record for people who might not know, you you own the barn, you're not a farmer. Who are you and what is this barn?
1: I, I'm not a farmer. I do have a barn. It's painted bright neon red and white, the white trim on the exterior. Uh, and I am by trade as of right now a landscaper, so it's it's kind of adjacent, but... So, the barn is a bouldering gym and with ice tools. It's maybe 800 square feet, and I re- run it seasonally at my house in Seattle. And it's kind of a pre season training. And since the ice in the Northwest is, I guess, it's marginal, um, you're almost always guaranteed to have mixed conditions at some point with global warming and just kind of the maritime snowpack. So, you know, it's kind of my idea to be as prepared as possible for what you might come across, which is why having kind of this preseason training is is so good. But the barn itself is is a bouldering gym that people come kind of to climb at and kind of train up for the season. And how it got started is a whole different story. Do you do you want me to talk about that, uh, or do you want me to talk about who I am? Hey, my, hey I'm Tom. What's up? Um, yeah. So how how it started is kind of funny. Uh, I came back to Seattle maybe five or six years ago from living in South Korea at the time. And I had to order a tree, and it was kind of frustrating because I was still interested in competing globally. And so instead of going to playgrounds and climbing on play toys, which is uh, hilarious, <laughs> but also really weird, you know, everybody looks at you like, what are you doing uh, over there? Figure fours on, a, on monkey bars. Uh, so I built a bouldering wall in my house and a 15 meter place for speed climbing and I started to have my ice partners rotate through for preseason training. And then the walls grew and we had this single mattress that we'd push around the floor like we were a poor college kid turned ice climber. And we'd move around the single light. And there's great consequence if you weren't on your route or you fell off because there was rakes and mattocks and pickaxes and ladders everywhere. So if you fall off, you'd probably fall on the ladder or maybe the single mattress that we we're pulling around. But anyway, so it started growing, you know, with, with the amount of partners and the interest and everybody's like, gosh, oh, you know, we can, can finally train and get strong and go out and not fall off ice. You know, people weren't falling off ice, but, uh, the idea was to get more competent, stronger. And so it started growing the walls and then our local crew got a little bigger. And eventually I said, well, I should probably get like liability insurance. For you, for you guys, like, not that I don't trust you, but you know, it's kind of." Turn it into a thing and so i did and the idea of you know it's not that big of a jump to go from just training your homies and having liability to hey let's open this up for the broader seattle community so that everyone can benefit and we can get a little bit more knowledge out there um so that's kind of the genesis of the
0: barn there's no chickens
1: oh no there's chickens i i have little stickers on the on the routes there's a there's a little chicken route, you know, you can climb the tractor route, the cow route, the horse
0: route. Yeah. Well, this is new. This is, this is after my time.
1: Oh yeah. No, no, no. We We, have definitely put a premium on making it a little bit more fun for the user. You yeah. know, you gotta want it. You gotta want to climb the flying chicken route. I mean, we gotta give a little bit of motivation there, you know, but <laughs> it's a little slanderous to be called the dry tool guy. And I feel like a lot of people are like, oh, oh yeah, I know Tom's the dry tooling guy. But I feel like it's so dirty. You know what I mean? Like it just just sounds bad. so and that's why that's why I have this public challenge out there for if you rename dry tooling, I will give you a paranomics or extremes. How about that? Gnomics or extremes, your choice. Five years, make the name stick, and the tools are yours.
0: So just to get started, how did you get into rock climbing?
1: I think everyone has kind of a weird story about this, but my first few, first few times, I was just taken out locally by one of my friends, and uh, we were top roping. As a kid, I I didn't really go outside. I was just kind of like going to school, coming back. It wasn't really this, you know, I I, I guess I kind of loved and fetishized the outdoors because I didn't get to go outdoors. and didn't get to go camping and all that. I grew up in uh, kind of northeast Tacoma and uh, in a place called Fife. And if you ever pass through the the area, you know, it's kind of like the, last place to reload before you go to Tacoma, or it's just a bunch of cabbage fields and car dealerships. So I didn't really get to go outside a whole lot. Um, By the time I left for the military when I was 17 or 18, I started going outside all the time because that's what you do in the army. And eventually I started going outside and climbing and it was, that kind of just kicked it off for me. Um, I spent a lot of time. Figuring out how I could screw duty <laughs> and uh, it, it take off without you know authorization to go and go climb, and sneak out. And um, I did that quite a bit out the the Gunks and uh, the Adirondacks. So, um, yeah, I, I think that was kind of how I got into climbing, because I had a friend taking out sport climbing once, and I was like, oh, this is cool. And then it just stayed in the back of my mind until I had the freedom to try to go out and go do that and uh i guess like other bad boys i just kept out doing it <laughs> when i wasn't supposed to
0: were you um was your training in new york i was in
1: new york and and uh you know i had access to go to the adirondacks and the gonks and um that's kind of where i spent a lot of my time but i i don't think i was really that into climbing until i went to shiprock north carolina and just on like a, a vacation, you know, a friend was who was a climber, big climber. This is, oh I don't know, maybe 2005. Um, and we went out and climbed Shiprock and uh, one of my friends was spooked when we got on this multi-pitch on the second pitch or so, because it was kind of like this weird unknown section, couldn't really see it. It was a little overhanging, a little roofy. And I was just so excited to be out there. I mean, the rock felt so good. You're in the sun, uh, everything felt right. So I said, I, you know what? Just give me the rack. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go for it. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. We'll figure it out. So that was my first lead and it was really formative. And it's a great thing that would went, it went well, uh, because if it didn't, I probably wouldn't have the same motivation, but it kind of gave me this, uh, this, this inception to go questing, uh, to go into the unknown and see what's gonna happen and try to figure it out with your trad gear and get through it. Um, and so I turned it towards more protectable lines because you can figure it out when it's a crack as opposed to face climbing. So I steered away from face climbing. I just wasn't, didn't find bolts appetizing either. Um, and I think like a lot of climbers, you kind of get struck by the aesthetics of a line and also the unknown. And I, I kind of akin that to, uh, maybe like a Christmas present under the tree where, you know, there's a thing there and you start like shaking it and you're like, what is this? What's it gonna be? It's, it's, making a little rattling noise. You're like, oh, okay. There's no bolts, but there's a crack. Like, oh, okay. You know, what kind of size crack is that? Oh, okay. I have cams for that. Oh, I'm going to go for it. Um, where, where, where am I going to bail to go this horrifically? Well, maybe I'll bail off one of my cams or maybe I'll bail over there, when it, You know, tops out or I can continue going. And you kind of get lost in, in that feeling of what's it going to yield, opening the present and then getting in trouble. And I, I got in trouble a lot. Um, I I wasn't particularly fond of guidebooks. I I didn't actually know about them for a while either. Um, so I would just go to a place that I knew there was rock climbing, and uh, you know I bought a, a trad rack, uh, and just going for it, just kind of opening the present. I actually would do a lot of solo lead climbing as well. This is insane for a new leader. Absolutely madness in retrospect. I uh, would anchor off a tree at the base somewhere and be like, "Okay, I'm going to go climb this by myself and not necessarily aiding it. Like I'm actually trying to free free climb a route, you know, with a tree on the base tied off. And oh my God, I was so dumb, but I, I love that process and and kind of the the quiet and opening the present, getting in trouble and being like, "Oh, I got to figure this out. How do I get out of here? You know, I've shanghaied myself. I'm like, you know, so many meters off the deck and." I've run out of gear or this terrible thing has happened. I've unclipped, like, how do I, how do I manage this? Um, and so I really got into rope systems and, you know, as soon as you start getting addicted to rock and then dealing with all the gear, it just keeps accelerating, uh, that addiction. So
0: I guess that's how I got started. It's clear as mud, right? (laughs) Uh, Crystal, how, so how do you get into lead solo climbing as a beginner? What was the system you were using? Not well. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> this is, yeah, right. I didn't have a silent partner. Um, I definitely had to stay below my, my maximum grade. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's, that's really big. And if you're not learning the biomechanics through bouldering and really refining your movements, you're gonna naturally get kind of plateaued. Um, and so I would stay plateaued and a little below my grade. But that typically is in areas that you can protect pretty well. But yeah, I, I really consumed as many books as I could yeah, talking about systems, rescue, self-rescue. There was tons of stuff on, on forums. You know, We've had you know, the advantage of the internet by the time I got into climbing so I could go and, and research and learn things. And regretfully, I didn't have have any guides in my life, which is absolutely insane. I don't understand why I had that aversion to guides. Um, I guess I didn't have money, but if I did pay for a guide, I'd probably would have had a lot fewer close calls. But solo solo leading when you're relatively new is uh, terrifying. I think if you survive your first year, few years of of climbing, like lead climbing, like you're gonna be okay. It's those first few years where you make these really critical mistakes. Um, but I, I would just, I think I started out with kind of a janky system of tying off to the bottom of a tree, setting up a bunch of clove hitches on lockers, and then just climbing and releasing a clove hitch as I went. Um, and I transitioned systems as I learned more, but I think that's how I started out. And it was very frustrating. (laughs) It was very, very frustrating. So I had to be very thoughtful about, you know, your, your movement, your timing.
0: I'm ignorant. So you were tying the rope to the base of a tree at the base of the route.
1: Yeah, to act as as my belay. And then as you climb up, you know, there's so many different ways to do it. If you have a silent partner, it's so much easier. But you have to have in a way to keep the rope on your body and let out rope as you climb up. But if you fall, it has to stop in some way. So uh, I would just do clove hitches and put it directly on my belay loop. And then as I needed more rope, I would undo that clove hitch on that specific carabiner. And then I would tie another one further along on the rope so that I would keep like three clove hitches on lockers on my belay loop at a time. So that's a method. Uh, it's. (laughs)
0: <laughs>
1: I, I mean, it's not smart. I mean, but you asked me how I got started and, and that was it. I was just obsessed. You know, I, I loved being out there. I loved the systems and figuring it out. It, it was, it was fun, you know, uh, and it was an escape at the time too. So I think that's a big part of part of it for a lot of people is doing something else.
0: What were some of the things that you, maybe you were, you were escaping with climbing?
1: Gosh, so I, I think with a lot of people who enter into a different kind of like societal microcosm when they're really young. When you're really young, you're trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to understand your identity, your roles in society, and all these elements. Uh, and I, I joined the army right away. Like I, I was super young, came from a very progressive family, and I joined the military. And you know, I'm surrounded by relatively conservative environment and. Uh, you know, you don't know who you are until you're like, what? Well, I don't know. Most, some people never figure out who they are, but it, I would say that typically happens, you know, in the, in the formative years, like in your twenties, you know, you start getting more of that identity. So I, I suffered from this identity versus role confusion element in my life in the military a lot where you're charged with so much responsibility and you're being told who you are. and You're being told what values you should have. And in a way. Like many other people in the climbing community, you, you, it's an escape. It's a it's a way to kind of run counterculture. It's much like skateboarding or um something along those lines where you're where you're trying to just be in an environment where you don't have to have an identity. You don't have to subscribe to society's telling you you're just doing a thing and, and having a little bit of a respite. And I think that's what climbing was for me, was, was a break, a mental break amongst all the mental conflict that you have
0: going on in your life. So you you were learning to climb on your own. You were in New York in the military. And I guess prior to South Korea, what was your progression in climbing like and sort of, you know, how are you learning and developing in that time?
1: Yeah, I mean, that that's a very large chunk of time. And I've I think I went into all this pretty much all climbing disciplines. I touched about everything except for big wall. Um, which I think instantly I'd probably did a lot of big well stuff while trying to aid through things I shouldn't have been at anyways. Notably I remember climbing some roof cracks, uh, that were, you know, high 12s or 13s and I was just like going for it, going for broke, trying and just flailing, not having the bouldering technique and having to aid through it. So you, you kind of figure out a lot of your systems or you start learning what those are to be able to support that effort that you want to do. but. Um, I bouldered a little bit. I didn't really get into it as much just because I loved the ambiance of being outside and multi-pitch climbing, which is just such a blast. So yeah, I I think I touched on most of the disciplines at one point or another. And the thing that really resonated with me, which is, is just climbing something that has immense flow for so many pitches. Like I absolutely, that's my favorite thing. Like if I could just pick one thing and be climbing in the sun, but it's kind of a cool day, you know, and you're you're just let's say climbing five seven, and you're just sprinting up for, you know, 30 pitches. That'd be like the best day ever. So I really started looking for kind of the longest lines that I could climb throughout the States. And and I moved throughout the States, gosh, I don't know. I probably moved twelve times in 10 years, something like that. But climbed all throughout the US and and I think every area has something unique about it. Like the rock is unique, the different types of rock, how they afford protection differently, what the ethics are. Notably, is is really fascinating to me throughout the U.S. There's so much controversy. I remember I was in <laughs> probably in a ported body at uh, Bear's Lodge or Devil's Tower, and I saw a bumper sticker that said "Sport climbing is neither," uh, which. <laughs> <laughs> it just is is amazing. It's really representative of kind of the divisions and attitudes that we've had historically throughout the U.S. Which is, I guess, pushed to the extreme with something like the chopping of the compressor route. And there's a lot of ideology there. And from my my perspective, having climbed these different styles and methods, and being in the South where there's such a strong bottom-up on-site ethic with you know trad climbing. I think of North Carolina and the runouts and water grooves that Arnold Ilgner was, you know, that that was his thing, and and then going to sport climbing areas. And I think style is a prison. I think it's something that will constrain your maximum potential. And I think the goal of alpinism is to to go up, and how you choose to do that is up to you. And I think a lot of people just choose injury and death because they that's the style they want to pursue and that's fine. That's on you. But I think a lot of folks should just be like oh, more open-minded about it and just realize that style can constrain your options to an unsafe way. I like going up. I like vertical progression. And I guess after getting into multi-pitch climbing I was like, Oh God, how do I, how do I do this in more of an alpine environment? You know, I had been done, doing snow travel and mountains and then realized, Hey, I don't know enough about ice. And so I reached out to uh, some of the guides in your oh god, where am I in my timeline? Oh my goodness, late knots went out to uh, Ure maybe, and worked with a late Mark Miller, who's a fantastic teacher, and I think he's the one who kind of gave me that spark for mixed climbing. We were out on uh, Tic Tac maybe. Anyways, we are we out climbing, and he just gave me a set of his tools, and I was like, "Really, you want me to use this on the rock? I'm gonna." Blunt them. He's like, ah, go for it. It's, it's great. And I just remember suffering, just trying to understand how pick work and how my crampons were staying on. And it just, in the same way as trying to on site a route, getting in trouble and trying to, having to figure it out, your mind is on fire and just accepting it and being like, this is fine. This is okay. Let's figure it out. It just lit a spark for me. And all I ever wanted was to climb WI3. Like to me, that's the five, seven in the sun, having fun, but the mix climbing and, and having Mars show me what's possible on the wall just blew my mind. And it just opened up a whole nother chapter for me. And I was so excited about it. And I had a few more outings, but ultimately kind of my military schedule pulled me away and I wasn't able to dedicate a whole lot of time on that. And it wasn't until I got to Korea that I really got into the dark arts. Now that's a whole nother chapter. And I skipped over so much stuff. So I'm sorry. <laughs> it's really hard to think on your whole history of climbing. I mean, there's so many routes, there's like, you know, there's thousands of outings. So, but I dedicated a preponderance of my life to going out and climbing. Every minute I had available, every weekend, uh, I was out climbing from sun up to sun down. And my objective was to do as much as possible. So it wasn't uncommon to try to get like 20, 30 pitches in, in a day. Just, trying to just go, 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 get as much done as you can. Unless there's a huge approach. Like I would go and try to climb out crags. It was just the best. And I didn't like redoing routes. I'd be like, okay, it's gotta be new. I'm not doing this one twice. That's projecting. And I I actually never went into the projecting side of the house until maybe like 2014. But uh, everything had to be new, new flavor of the day um because it's that same thing of a christmas present you can open it up see what it has and as time got shorter i started saying okay i only want to have I, i'd even climb the zeros like if it was a bomb project or a climb and everybody was like oh it's terrible i was like oh i'm gonna go do it like Chass is great it's climbing i don't care and i go climb it um i love choss. i'll say that right now because it keeps the crowds away but um I think when you, when you run short on time, what you really want to have is a four star climb (laughs) that you can count on. And that's why you go to the guidebooks. That's why I go to the guidebooks, um, actually this summer, I, I only got out twice to go rock climbing and this is a little telling of kind of my style. The first time we went out to a place south of the enchantments, which is a very popular area for climbing and recreation. And so, you don't need a permit in this zone, but we found what we consider to be a a very stellar plumb line. And that's maybe the project for spring. And we developed all these variations off of it. Uh, We went out for three days and just climbed, you know, had ourselves like a three star hand crack, 70 meters right off the ground to the deck to the next pitch. There's three other two star lines you could climb. And, you know, like that's the best thing to me. You show up, you start climbing, you find this beautiful line that nobody's been on. There's no information about it. You got to figure it out. And you're questing into the unknown and you don't know what's going to happen when you get up to a certain point because you can't see. You know, It might turn over as the best. You know, We went out for three days and put up some absolutely amazing lines. Uh, I was with my friend, Sean Fujimori, he's a great human and his partner, Lydia. And it was a blast just hanging out with them. We had the rain trickle in at one point. So we just took a nap and waited for it to pass and then kept climbing. Uh, it's great. The other time we went climbing this the summer, I went out with uh, one of my, a couple of my partners and, uh, EZD and Jason, and we went out to, uh, a new area that I'd scouted a few years earlier, which was like a, a crag along a waterfall. And at first, I was like, oh, maybe this will freeze up. It's too low elevation. But maybe the rock's good. So we started questing miles in to the, through the green wall of brush and slide alder. You know, you got berry poking you in the eye, Double's Club that you accidentally grab because you're on a steep, muddy slope. And we're just questing in the Middle Fork Valley, which has a lot of amazing climbs and some good rock. And we're like, oh, maybe that bluff up there, and we, as we approach, it looks really chossy and we're like, ah, we're probably gonna die. Let's go up a little farther. we see a nice granite dome. So we go and we attack it, we jump on and it's kind of chossy, get up to the second pitch. Eh, it's getting worse. And we get up to the third pitch and pretty much I, you know, lead out a whole pitch and there's no pro. And I'm like, okay, it's time to leave. And that, and that was it. And we bailed before we, you know, got ourselves in too much trouble. Uh, Too much trouble besides we now full pitch, you know, with no pro kind of stuff. Um, but it's all crumbly. It's like a Mario level. You grab a, you know, like Mario's jumping platform and platform and jump up. And then as you climb up, your handhold just comes off with your hand. Or as you step up, it goes out with your foot. It's just kitty litter and, and poorly bonded, poorly adhered to the wall. Uh, and that was our day. We repelled. We said that was terrible. Thanks for the recon, Tom. Let's get out of here. So, out of the two times that I really went climbing this year, is one was a, a stellar, you know, find of a great rock crag, and the other was absolute crap. But what was fun about it was the process and suffering, <laughs> and and opening the present, to see what happens. You know, on the second pitch of that I really crumbly climb, uh, Doug climbed through this beautiful chimney uh, with really interesting movement. I, even though the the pro probably would have ripped out and everything would have been terrible you would have fallen into a tree but but you don't know until you go there and and that's the the cool thing about climbing is that you can just go out and see see what's around the corner you know there's no harm in doing that go open your christmas present, see what happens so um so that was my year in climbing i've been really busy with grad school and that's really all i got to do but it was awesome i loved every bit of it
0: so I guess what I'm understanding is that, you know, you didn't, maybe don't like this idea of knowing what you're going to get into, and it can be zero-star choss piles, it could be three-star plumb lines, and this sort of mapping, unboxing, experiencing it as it unfolds is something that you really pursue, um, and that's the the joys in the process. And I, and I want to I pause there because I think we're going to go a, a lot more into the mindset that you've developed of evaluation and self-learning and things like that. But I also want to do that in the context of mixed climbing. And in order to get there, we have to get to South Korea. So what brought you to South Korea and how did that intertwine with your development in, um, in mixed climbing?
1: Yeah. So I was, in, I was stationed in South Korea several times. I mean, obviously I was in the army, and, uh, you know, for me, I, I, saw the army as a way to delay the decision, what I want to do, be in life. And I think a lot of us struggle with that. You're like, yeah. I have to pick and decide and make decisions that are, if I pick the wrong one I'm stuck. Well, incidentally, I still picked a crew track <laughs> I by doing this, but I wanted to really delay the decision. Uh, I saw it as a way to kind of access higher education. You know, I, I was, wasn't really physically solvent, uh, raised by a single mom. It was like a K 12 teacher. So, so anyways, went to the military, got educated, uh, was flying scout helicopters. That was kind of my trade and we were filling a strategic gap on the Korean peninsula while the Fath movers were absent. So anyways, I'm gonna skip over that chapter of all the things I did in the military, but I was in the military. I went to Korea at one point and the climbing was amazing. I mean, I, if, if anybody takes away anything out of your podcast, I hope that it's to go to South Korea for a gastro adventure and for the climbing on the northeast side, there is a park called Surak or Surak San, San meaning park. And it's just beautiful. I mean, it's, it's off the water and there's just tons of, of mountains to climb. You could be, you could do like eight pitches, repel, another eight pitches, repel, eight pitches, repel, just continue going. Just fantastic climbing out there. Anyways, I, I climbed a, a route that chernard put up right off right outside of seoul. Cause he was stationed in Korea at one point as well. And I decided I needed to come back and really dive into what Korea offered. And so I got stationed there again. And when I was out there, I had a ton of friends that were expats. You know, expat community is really strong whenever you leave the states. And most of the climbers were expats. That's just kind of how it works. There wasn't a lot of military climbers. And so I, I was going out with one of my friends, Sam, who's projecting in the south. Trying to get her five thirteen project really in strong sport climber and along comes her friend who joined us. His name was Emer, Emer McSwigget. It turned out Emer is a world Cup climber, not only that, but she's podiumed and lead difficulty, uh, fantastic person. And she said, Hey, why don't you come over to the gym and see what we're doing with ice tools? Cause she heard about me saying, Hey, I love my time out. I, I loved everything that I've done mixed climbing so far. She's like, well, why don't you just come out and play on tools? So she gave me an invitation. She said, if you do whatever the captain says, he'll train you. And I was like, wow, this is like some weird, mythical, you know, uh, Miyagi kind of thing. So I was like, all right, cool. I'm game. Let's go. Let's see what happens. So I started bouldering with tools, dry tooling. And, uh, I just kept training there. You know, I think it was July. It's 90 degrees of full humidity. We're pouring sweat the room has no AC. Uh, your hands are just, you know, bags and soup trying to hold on to the ice tools. It's a disaster, but it was so much fun. I mean, it is, you know, like he came out to the barn, you know, it's a bunch of fun. And so I, I started training with him and, and then I found out that she was trying to train for cups and I was like, oh, that's crazy, like, cool. You know, I'll, I'll hang out with you and cheer you on while you practice. And eventually it kept training with her and had a good time, started getting better. And I was like, well, how do I, how do I compete? And there's like no answers to that question. You know, one, cause I'm, I'm in a whole different country, but two, there's just not enough, um, community built up around competition climbing in the States at that point in time. So it was really hard to find an entry. It was kind of like a, a wet bag of spaghetti noodles. Like what do I do with this?
0: What year is this just for context?
1: Uh, 20, is it 15 or 16, somewhere around there. Yeah. Okay. And since I was done with the military at that point, I was looking for more communities to, to be part of. And it was just a really great sense of camaraderie with the Korean community. Um, being in a Korean climbing gym, you go out as a team, you go out and you go multi-pitch as a team, you go ice climbing as a team. You do, you do everything you go out and you go eat. Uh, it, it was like joining a whole nother community. So that was that was kind of how I got into uh, the World Cup stuff was the segue through my time of service in Korea.
0: Right. And so just like you had bags of spaghetti water in your gloves trying to hang onto the tools, you also took to the sport like someone takes to water because you went from just starting to train in this gym to the World Cup in six months. So... Something was going right. How did the process go that you were, had such an accelerated track?
1: I would say that there's not too much. I think any person can go in you know, M0 to M6 in six months. I think that that's fairly accurate if you abide by the basic fundamentals of, of body mechanics and tool management and pick management. Um, I think to, to climb kind of the World Cup levels it's a combination of, uh, being able to show shown the techniques and things we need to know, but then also mental. I mean, I, I think everything boils down to the mental game. It's a game of percentages. Every little bit counts. So on the mental side, I found the training to be particularly taxing. Um, our captain was very aggressive in his approach. He didn't care if you were having a bad day. He didn't care what was going on. And it was the perfect environment for There's stress. It's good for you. Train, like train harder, keep going. Don't give up, try, try and fail. And I, uh, the two things he would yell all the time. And I love this thinking back on it is I, uh, he would yell Kim Jong-un who's the, a UIA route setter. Uh, he would say, try, you know, like you'd be struggling. And you'd be like, oh, I don't know. And you'd be like, try and you you try and then you see what happens. And maybe you fail, maybe you don't, but it doesn't matter. It's about the element of trying, right? And playing. We didn't really play. We just tried really hard. And then you'd yell faster. And, and that's really interesting to me in retrospect, because I, if you try to go too fast in mixed climbing, you make errors and there's this, you have to know how fast you can go before you start getting sloppy but also pace is really important. So there's so many lessons learned out of that, of both pacing, managing your pump clock is one of those elements. Uh, and then also getting the conditioning that you need because you can only do that by pushing yourself instead of just resting until you think you're ready. So there's a lot of facets in training and sports science here that I'm just kind of like brushing over and, and that's okay. So bear with me on that. Um, but I, I absolutely love those two things that he did. And it reminds me of the story about these two gymnasts. One goes to the Olympics and, uh, does their routine. Despite the fact that it's cold, they don't have the right music on. Everything's awful. They do their routine. They nail it. They do great. The other gymnast comes out and normally performs at, you know, 99%, 99%. nails their routine. Uh, they go out and they totally botch it because they didn't have their song playing because they didn't have the right food for the day. And I, and I think how you train prepares you for the activity you're going to do. So if you don't train in the right conditions, when everything's perfect, when it's time to go do the activity, you, you're able to be like, all right, yeah, you that's know, cool. I'm used to these elements. So I, I think in a way that kind of said the, said the monster a little bit for me, um, so, training in conditions to going out, mixed climbing when everything's almost inevitably wrong or not ideal because you can't be thinking, oh, this hold isn't good. This hold is bad. You have to think, how do I use this hold? How do I improve upon my position? And when the weather condition doesn't cooperate or you feel tired and you feel like you're bonking, whatever is going on in your head, it doesn't matter. Like your psychology has to be really strong, but yeah, it really clicked for me. I, I absolutely love climbing with tools. I, I think a lot of that ties back to. Uh, the psychology, the, the kind of where your mental mindset is. And we could talk about that too, hopefully.
0: I mean, my impression of military training is that it would be a lot of drilling in imperfect environments. And I wonder if that has played into your ability to ad- adapt to situations. Really, it's just like, you know, what were some of the, the things that you took away from the military and how was that applied maybe to your competition climbing and then further on in mixed climbing?
1: In the military, you really learn how to suffer well, and I think that's such a great general life lesson for backcountry travel or recreation, where you kind of have higher stakes. Um, a very big tenant is stress inoculation, where you have this progressive leveling in your training. When you go out to shoot, you 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 have nothing on you. You're just learning how to use this instrument and do it well, and then you add on more things over time. I think the similarity there would be, can you learn how to do an A-frame an ice climbing movement with just an ice tool and your rock shoes? And then can you use your crampons and your hands, and then can you put it all together and can you do it in a controlled environment that's not freezing cold first, and then add on all your clothes and your harness and all these layers, and then all this equipment, and then a rope and then all these other environmental factors, you would perform a lot better than just trying to go out mixed climbing and doing everything at once. So I think stress inoculation is really important in training. And that was a big thing that I took away, uh, was that stress adaptation model, a little bit of stress, a little bit of growth, stress, growth, and you have to be pushed to grow. Uh, but you have to do it in this way that's systematic and thoughtful and not just raging into the elements. Um, like I would absolutely love to go climb some icebergs, but I would not just go do that on a wind. You know, what I mean, like I would think methodically, like, how do I do this? Okay. I n- need to get more familiar about maritime operations. Okay. I gotta, I gotta know more about icebergs and how they operate and what dangers happen on them. I need to know about climbing in really cold temperatures and how the ice reacts. And maybe I'm gonna go do that first before I try to jump on this monster that might shift unexpectedly. Um, I think Steve house really nails that. I, I can't remember where I heard this from him, but about you have to push yourself to grow, but you always need to have an escape or an out. And I think when it comes to doing things that are progressively more difficult, You have to have an escape. You can't force yourself to have no option. And the the equivalent here would be go solo a route at your limit when you haven't done that yet. So having, having an out is something that I've always, I've always thought about and being growing up in aviation, playing helicopters, that was always a big deal is having an out. And that's part of the planning process. You're supposed to use your expert judgment. So you don't use your expert skill. Like, I don't want to have to maneuver all crazy. Like at the last moment, because I didn't think about the winds and what they're doing and how a downdraft is going to throw me somewhere or how I'm going to run out of power while I'm climbing up a mountain. So, uh, you don't want to get cornered, whether that's tactically or with the aircraft. You have to stay ahead of the game. You have to stay ahead of your climbing. You have to stay ahead of the pump and the technicality. You have to stay ahead of the protection and the conditions. So trying to stay ahead of the game is, is a really big element in planning, uh, that. I think I took with me, uh, going out for an objective and being like, okay, how's the weather reacting? Let's stay ahead of it. What if it turns? So another thing for me is scenario planning, which is just thinking what's next. What happens if this breaks, if the weather turns, if a partner falls here? Uh, so I think in a way you're like a brooding introvert. Um, it's kind of fun in a way, but it's psychologically taxing. So you can't really ever turn off. I think uh, you have to always be thinking ahead about what's happening. Yeah. And that was a big thing that I got from the military was like the, the mental analytical part of that. And I think the attitude is a big part. Um, I think in the military, I'm gonna say overall, there's so many different <laughs> so, you know everybody has their different expressions and logos, mottos, whatever. Um, you know, in the Rangers that might be never quit but it's having no-fail missions and kind of this mindset of you can't, you, you can't fail. Like you have to succeed on this, so figure it out. There's no option to to fail. Um, I think that attitude really plays into Mick's Climber for me a lot because you can't fail. If you fall, you get hurt. And it's like, well, that's not an option. You know, you don't want to get hurt. So how do you figure this out and make it work? How do you protect? How do you move in a way that it's going to be stable on this potentially unstable terrain? Um, and I I feel like For me, those things combine to allow you to do stuff. You didn't think you could do, it kind of just raises you up a little bit. Another part from the military that affected me was the idea of mastering your craft. Um, you can't do anything half-ass and the, the army was really big on rehearsals. And I think climbing is too, but we just don't give it that acknowledgement. Like, do you? go and do snow travel without practicing crevasse rescue. If you do, you're just rolling the dice, but if you want to be proficient, master craft, you do the rehearsals, you practice crevasse rescue. You practice multi pitch partner rescue. Like you, you think of these things. You don't have a card, not like when something happens, you like, oh, let me pull out my, my step-by-step multi pitch partner rescue card and consult it on my phone. So I think you gotta practice it. And, and to me, the military was like all about practice doing the thing, drilling it, not just making a routine and wrote memorized, but also so you can improvise when things happen that are unexpected. And that's part of the, the layering of, of, uh, stress inoculation. Like you practice the small skills, like clipping with gloves unclipping with big gloves, which is what you have to do in winter to do a crevasse rescue. And then when things go wrong, let's say you drop something, during a crevasse rescue, you don't have that equipment available. You have to improvise. So, being proficient in certain level allows you to do that synthesis and improvisational ability. So, I think that's really key: is practicing your craft to the point that you know the components and you can improvise. And, th- and really, that comes down to experience. And I feel like that's why so many people are like, "Oh, you- all you need is experience. Just go out, and get tons of laps, see how the ice reacts, figure out your systems through tons of experience." But I. I feel like the, the shortcut there is to study your craft. It's to master your craft. So you don't have to go out and get all that time necessarily, but you have to understand what's going on. So you have to spend the time thinking about it, and studying it. Um, and so I, I, think that's what it took with me from the military is the ability to think critically about a subject and be like, how do you, how do you get to the point where you're not
0: just reacting, where you can improvise, react appropriately. I mean, you 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 seem particularly self aware and reflective and thoughtful, and so I wonder also like how much of this learning process is, you know, your self evaluation and, and self teaching like after the fact as well. I
1: think there's so many incredibly
0: important tools for performance, and
1: I we could dive into a lot of the mental models for performance and improvement. Uh, I, I have a background in psychology as well, so. I'd I kind of love this stuff, but one of the biggest parts that, that I found at least for extremist environments or things that are high consequence or maybe outside the routine of the office is mm-hmm. having that stress inoculation, having problem solving skills and being able to work on and refine those skills. We can talk on that in a second. And then lastly, having some ability to do a reflective introspection and learning. And I think that's what you're asking about. and so. To me, the way I've done that is is I've had like a climbing diary, uh which I could just sink on things after the fact and allow it to keep ruminating. If something bothered me, it'll come up eventually. Um, doing a post mortem with the team, I mean that's like best practice for skiing, right? You get back, you know, like, where did we sail? Why did the flight happen? You know, what factors were at play as an expert halo? Like what what was the deal? And doing those postmortems, I feel like is really important. And then looking back at yourself, like I always like doing a climb and then being like, oh, that was great. I'm in bed and I'm like thinking about it around on the bivy and I'm like, oh, that was amazing. I can't believe this happened. And I think like, was I lucky when this happened or was I good? Uh, when we went through the crux as a team, do we navigate it in the smartest way or was there a better way? And I think just continuing to think about it a little bit gently, you don't have to be harsh on yourself and I, and, and I guess I am too hard on myself, but. Um, I think Steve house, again, asked that question, like, were you lucky or were you good? I think what it really takes is to be curious. Cause I, you know, if you're curious about it, you're like always thinking about it. You know, my partner's really into, uh, ceramics and has a little pottery studio downstairs and she's always breathing on it. she's, she's just curious. She's like, how did I make the perfectly fitting lid or, or why won't it fit? And I think if you're curious, you naturally are gonna keep Braining on the thing. You're gonna keep trying to figure it out. Um, you can of course have these different things in place to, to give yourself space to think about a climbing diary does that. The post-mortem does that with your team or your self reflections when you're laying in the bivy. But I think being curious about it is, is the key. So that was, that was one part of the answer, but, uh, for me, I think having a, a mental model for improvement, is that reflective introspection and learning component and curiosity. And then in, in the moment, well, before to even go out, you're doing the stress inoculation, you're doing your leveling, your progression. And then when you're in the moment, you're, you have to have a couple of different paradigms. For me, the Rock Warrior way, Arnold Ogner's work was, it was such a Satan grace to be able to examine my motivations and kind of realize what I was what motivated me for me, was the process. It was doing the thing. It, it was never the, the end result of what grade I could climb, which is why I stayed away from projecting for so long because I didn't have the right motivation to align for doing that. I think projecting is great. I think it's fantastic way to learn. Um, but I didn't do it for so long because I was motivated by other, the aesthetics of climbing. But I think problem solving, asking yourself how having a, a paradigm for focus, I think those are incredibly empowering things as well as having an out on problem solving, this is something that I mean, there's some, everybody has their own way. Uh, for me, at least what, what I found to be critically helpful in the moment when I'm doing something particularly stressful is to just breathe and recenter. And a lot of times when I, I find myself i like pumping out or. I'm getting frustrated. I keep grabbing the wrong pin. I'm like, God, I should have grabbed an angle, not a knife blade, or like I grabbed a knife blade and not an angle, or something's wrong. And I'm just kind of getting frustrated. I have to breathe and recenter. And I feel like that's so common. Everybody says that. Um, but by recentering, I'm re-examining where I'm at with my environment. You know, I'm taking a breath, I'm looking at it, I'm seeping my my horse blinders off You to me, to your spatial awareness, you re-examine your stance. you like, how can I improve this? So I'm more restful? You re look at your grip, you squeeze and relax just a little bit. I think that breathing and recentering is incredibly important and something that I, I wish I did more earlier. It would have helped me tremendously staying out of bad situations. Um, uh, because you're redlining and you're trying to find a solution. You're like, ah, why, why won't it go in? You know, like, why won't the ice tool go in? Well, maybe if you hit the rock harder, it'll go in. Right. So, um, I think when you're problem solving, you have to have multiple approaches to do something and you have to be asking yourself, how do I do this a couple of different ways before you enter the crux so that you have those options to be able to work out while your, your mind is on fire. And. You have to have a retreat. And I think that gives you the mental safety or commitment. Like you have to commit when you're doing a thing. You have to just commit and do it. You can't do it half, half as or half effort. You have to commit. And when you commit, you need to know if you have an out. Because if you have an out and you try your, your multiple methods and they don't work, you have to say, okay, I'm going to go do this instead. I, I think that's a, a great paradigm for problem solving. But that's just mine. Nice. Everybody has their own. You know, I'm just thinking about all these other performance things. So I was, I, I competed in college in Taekwondo and our team took home some, I think a couple times, some championships and I took a welterweight title as well. Um, uh, this is before it got soft when you're actually hitting people. And I think I won the preponderance of my matches by knockout. Uh, I was a head hunter and I hit really hard. So, and I, and I feel bad about that now, like in retrospect thinking about you know, college age kids getting you know, knocked out and having be concussed and having TBIs and all that. But um regardless of my my good about that now, one of the things that really helped me perform uh back then was uh two two things. And and it really comes down to how we train. If you're visualizing your performance, be able to do your associated and disassociated visualization. Associated meaning you see yourself in your body and you're doing the motions, uh, and you're, and you're doing that performance. You're visualizing success and what it looks like and what it feels like it's to your brain. It's just another repetition of, of your training, you're like, oh yeah, I did the thing already. It's cool. So when you get to that point, you're like, oh yeah, I got this. It's cool. You know, oh, spin drift's coming down. It's cool. I'm, I'm good. I'm good. I'm just gonna huddle up and just wait for it. It's fine. Um, and it's dissociated when you visualize from a third person perspective, uh, those things. And, and I use that tremendously when I was training for Taekwondo, it was. And I did some other martial arts as well, but that was the one that really took off for me. And I performed exceptionally well because I, I did those mental training exercises. So I was still getting reps in even when I was recovering. And it helped me do things that I didn't think I could. It started helping me develop more engrams and move better and more efficiently. And I think the takeaway to climbing there is, is pretty obvious. You know, You're visualizing your actual movements and seeing the success on it. But I think you can also visualize your success on a larger objective and just be like, oh yeah, yeah. I'm on top of Janning. I did it. You know, I think that's totally applicable, which by the way, I think is freaking amazing. I, I don't think there's been enough attention on that, that team, their effort. I, I really want to look forward to seeing more about it. Uh, and I would also love to climb that line, like dream line for me. Uh, the other thing is that I, I feel like really is important for performance is understand when you're training the difference between learning and flow. When you're learning, you have to do this like conscious analytical effort. Maybe it's a little bit of play, but for the most part, you're like, trying to understand how, how the engram works. And then flow is you're just letting all go, all subconscious. And in a way you're letting the mountains paint on you as a canvas. So it's a different relationship. You're just letting go and see what happens. So when you're at your total peak performance. You just let go and you just see what the route does with you and how you dance. And maybe you start to disassociate even and you're not feeling, seeing the things, you're just watching from afar. Uh, that that's just the, the flow states of conscious climbing. So I think leveraging those two things and being conscious of when you're doing one versus the other is really important. And I'll do training sessions with people where we are trying to problem solve and figure out like, what's the body mechanic you need to use Consciously and analytically, but that's not peak performance. When you want to to do that, you have to just totally let go and be like, "All right, like we're just gonna we're just gonna flow, we're just gonna play, to see what happens." But that's pulling the memorized engrams into your performance, so you have to have experience to draw on to be able to do that.
0: When you're preparing for a training session and you're saying, maybe it's not a, uh, this explicit for you, but you're saying, "Okay, it's time to be analytical and finally." Finally, attuned and and focused and that's the mindset with which i'm approaching this hour and a half whatever when you're going to your objective quote-unquote game day time to show up do you have a, a process that you go through to maybe show up with a different mindset
1: yeah i think you when you show up for game day you you're showing up you're grateful for being there And you're letting the day happen. You're constantly thinking about the scenario planning of what if. But in terms of your actual movements in climbing, you should flow. You should be subconscious movement, letting the route paint upon you what it will. Assume that you have the background, the technical capabilities. You're just going out to perform. So you should just be relaxed.
0: If you were to talk to maybe people that were just getting into the sport of, let's say, dry tooling, especially, even though you don't want to be Mr. Dry Tooling guy. So let's say any sort of climbing, you are not, you are not Mr. Dry guy, you are, you are coach. You are someone that likes to help other people pursue their own dreams. I'd say that's accurate. Um, so let's say somebody else is getting into climbing or, you know, they're projecting a route. What would be some of the first things you'd have them work on?
1: Very succinctly. I would say you need to examine your motivations and what you want to accomplish. Because I have a lot of people that show up that say, hey, I want to climb harder. And I'm like, okay, well, why do you want to do that? What do you want to do? Is it alpine focused? Is it just to get out and have fun? And, or is it to do a very technical thing? And I think by looking at your motivations, you can decide where to start. The reason why I say you have to look at the motivations for that climber is because sometimes they're looking to complete the movement and not find out the truth in the movement. And it's interesting to see what they're looking for. If, if they're looking for the end result, then they are building their identity on the completion of that. And if they don't do it, they'll be frustrated and will yell or cuss or be upset. But if they're focused on learning the truth in the movement, even when they fail, they'll be like, oh, eye-opening that was exciting. That was cool. Let's, you know, I was playing. I almost got it. Let's, let's try again. It's a different kind of emotion and different process. So if if I can see what somebody's initial motivations are early on, it's a lot easier to try to understand how to coach them in a way. And I, I find that if you're focused on the effort, people become more curious and are willing to try more and keep going and won't get as frustrated earlier. Whereas people that are focused on the end state, did I send or not send? Like, I uh, get frustrated, and there's a different kind of approach I try to take with each of those types of people. But if I would say there's one way to be, it would be be curious, you know. Like, but again, you have to reexamine your your motivations, and I think this goes into a lot of the uh, Rock or your Way philosophy, which again is a fantastic read. And I guess to answer your question. For a beginner climber, what would I recommend them? It'd be to go read that book. Like, understand what you're going for in your journey and why before you start getting frustrated and shut down and hard space for climbing. (laughs) Because it will shut you down at some point.
0: I did start reading the book, actually. I found it. um, I think I'm on the the start of the third progression step. Um, Really insightful. I mean, I could see a lot of the parallels with what he's talking about and how it's been adopted and sort of um absorbed by you it's i mean it's clear it's been a huge influence um we sort of bopped around a bit but you went from south korea and then you ended up coming back to seattle and we're gonna bop around a bit more but you ended up helping to develop a dry tool craig and i feel like this plays into a core part of your ethos which is sort of providing access and so can you talk about wayne's world and how that came to be and why did you feel it was important to work on this project because you quit your job to, to work on it. Um, and, and several people also spent a lot of time and effort putting it together.
1: Well, I, I think it, it ties in a lot to barriers to access and my, my motivation coming back was looking at our community and understanding that, you know, I just had this wild out of the world experience doing competition climbing and trying to relate that back to the Cascades where there there isn't really that style. Um there were a couple hard, kind of dried mixed lines, notably Roger Strong in the early two thousands, put up all these lines, which was like, you know, way out there. Uh and it kind of laid dormant for a long time. And to play in the Cascades, I think you need to have a really diverse skill set and a lot of uh Well, there's a lot of barriers to access and I, and I saw that and I, and I started ruminating on how do we start eliminating barriers to access and it's either through knowledge or, or having the actual physical thing that you can do something on. And so I got introduced to Wayne Wallace and Kyle Willis and some others as part of this quest and they had found a crag that had fell into shambles. Wasn't gonna be used for climbing. It was looked up for sport climbing. Indeed. It wasn't useful. They already had a trail established to it. And they've already had some permissions to do work on it from the landowner. So it was it was kind of a natural thing to say, well, we need a to chilling to crack. You know, if we're gonna see any movement in alpinism and having folks climb in this in the cascades, which is maritime weather, it's highly variable, it's often not in, you have to have a larger skill set training background to be able to rely on because you don't rise to your level of expectation. But you fall to your level of training, and so having this asset available—I think that was like Archilocus, Greek philosopher. Anyways, having this available would be the thing that the community could use to be able to elevate, have greater margin safety going outside. And so I—I I was quite fed up with my my job at the time, and I had just finished coming back from Switzerland from the World Cup. And I, I ran into Wayne and we talked about this and he's like, Hey, yeah, we're thinking about doing this. So I showed up to the crag and they had one route put up and, uh, there was only one route at the time. I think it's like high stepping for Jesus. And so I was like, all right, cool. We'll I'll warm up on that, whatever. Just, you know, climbed it. And then we're like, that was the FA. I was like, why'd you do me dirty, man? You know, they are just, they're feeling me out. So after I passed that introduction, I suppose, uh, we started developing. So I quit my job and decided that. This, it's no way I quit my job two weeks before COVID hit. So, um, great timing on my part to have no income. And, and we went out and we developed. So I, at this point, I think there's over 50 lines and put a huge emphasis on the intent, which was to have accessible climbing for folks that feel safe. And so you go to the top of every line and there's an anchor that has a tag that says what the difficulty is and what the name of the route is so that you know as you rappel into it what it is there's even fixed lines that sterling donated great partner in the process to be able to get access to those anchors and then you can rappel down folks in top rope they can lead etc and we put in a ton of love Uh, there's trail days to be able to ensure this trail was sustainable over the years um, and to prevent social trails as well and we worked with DNR Department of Natural Resources for Washington state specifically to, to get permission to do that. And they are partners in the effort. It was, it was a, actually a really amazing case study for crag development. by working with landowners as well as stakeholders, ensuring there was no higher use for the area because it had already been passed by for use as sport climbing, uh, during Garth and Bordeaux's early looks. And I think the late nineties and it just sat there. There's already a trail. The biggest thing we have to worry about is habitat fragmentation, developing trails. And so it, it, it kind of was a, Hey, a no brainer, um, the really low impact development. And it would create a lot of access for folks to be able to go and train. And, and I think now it, I mean, God, there's, if I look at the mountain project page for it, I bet there's thousands of views a month for people. There's probably gonna be tens of thousands of people hear about it from us. Yeah. I mean, there's. over 25,000 page views, over 500 a month for this area of Lane's world and it was developed. That's That's awesome. Congratulations. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's being used. That's, that's what we wanted. That's what we intended. So we made it safe and accessible. So yeah, that was the first step, uh, to kind of transitioning into Seattle and saying, how do we do access? The second step I realized was you know, climbing like M7 up to M7 is pretty much the same thing. Um, but there's a lot of key technical skills people were missing. And so to both get at that and to keep building the community, we opened the barn. And so the barn's been open for I think three years now. And the idea being people get the preseason training in, so they're operating with, you know, an excess of strength to be able to go into the alpine in tech, access technical capability, but also the community element. We really focused on trying to figure out how to build the community a little bit more. We, you know, create a Facebook page. Uh, we had a dry Tula Palooza in the 2020, once we opened the crag, it was pouring rain, absolutely pissing, like, you know, full inch or something. Everybody's in wet weather gear, climbing on tools out of weeds world. It was hilarious, but it, you know, we have like 60 people show up for that. And then we ran all these clinics, and we started with the women-only clinics because if you start with the women, then the men will come like flies. So, yeah. so we we did these all these clinics, and and we've had you know lots of people cycle through as we're kind of expand the community, get the knowledge out there, and then um, opening the barn was was equal parts of doing technical training and having kind of a cornerstone where people would gather. We've had. Lots of comps and kickoffs where we fill out, hang out, have fires, talk. And a lot of people meet their ice partners at the barn, the people that they go and climb with. But it's interesting to me, and I've struggled with this one point about American individualism for so long in my life that we're so stuck on doing everything by ourselves. But once you suffer from some minor setback or barrier to access, whether it's class, socioeconomic, or money, Your community is the one thing that can help you overcome those barriers. Even if it's information, right? Like if you Aaron, you show up to my house, you're like, I I've never climbed before on ice or mixed. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. And you're part of that community. I can pull you in and give you that information. So community is resilience. And so the barn, part of the idea behind the barn was to further the resilience of the community and to continue to, uh, break down those barriers to access. So. So that was a big part of it. Um, but Wayne's world was it's huge chapter. I mean, incredible props to, to Kyle Willis and Wayne Wallace, And there's so many other hands at play that have done trail work and, and work on the routes. I, I have so many stories about Kyle being out there for days on row, just trying to clean shots off. So it'd be safer for people during the freeze-thaw cycle. Um, and yeah, there is route ice that forms out there. If, but of course, freezing level has to be quite low. But it, it does happen. But it's not as exciting as you might hope. Mostly dry crag.
0: There was also community involvement with Wayne's World itself, too. It was large part crowd funded, right? The, a lot of the hardware.
1: Yeah, uh, that was actually Kyle's brainchild. I mean, he's definitely cornerstone to this effort. Who thought of the idea? and had the conviction to fall through on it and say like, Hey, this is, this is a lot of effort to be able to put up all these lines. Does the community want it? You know, we really solicited with stakeholders and said, is this something we're interested in and how are we gonna do it? So it was a grassroots effort. I mean, it, it costs a lot for those that aren't developers, you know, like, uh, to be able to get a bolt might be four or $5, but the question is not just what kind of bolt is it? Is it, is it stainless steel? Is it through a four through 16? Is it, is it compatible with the hangers you're using? I mean, compatibility is a huge thing. You have galvanic corrosion because electrons doing electron things that causes premature rusting and then hardware failures. So we, we like thought about all of these factors and bought the right stuff and it costs a lot of money to get the right stuff. Um, so yeah, the community funded it and then those funds were used for that hardware. It was used for those efforts. Uh, it, it all gets poured back into the community. And yeah, it certainly did hook us up with a lot of ropes and development and the fixed lines are out there as well. And all the ropes that we use from the mix clinics and all these other things. So a lot of great community partnerships at play.
0: You know, a large part of the ethics you kind of already touched upon. It was engaging the stakeholders, asking if the community actually wanted, wanted this. But then as far as like the crag itself, were there any discussions around like shaping routes or how you, how you were thinking about grades, things like that?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a very nuanced topic. Um, route development is there's different sides of the coin here. I would call the Euro style is that where you just drill, drill, hold, and that's the route. And I, I think that's okay. It, it in a way, um, it's okay in a way that it makes it more sustainable and lot have more longevity. Um, because at the end of the day, the idea is you're doing a route, you're doing the same dance as the developer. And that's the joy of going out climbing. You know, you talk about, uh, jumping on all along the watchtower and you're like, ah, oh, man, I and mean, then you got to that point where that crack just never ended. You're like, oh, I know. And, and we're like doing the same dance. We're talking about how we're just throwing our hands in forever and what an experience that was. And, and that's the thing is you're doing the same dance as somebody. So replicability of an experience is important when you develop a line. And I think when you develop a rock line, you're looking for that as well. Is there a friable flake that might come off that's dangerous? Do you just put an x on it with chalk and move on or do you try to take it off um did that change the handholds this is a, a very nuanced discussion of what's the right ethic Is the right ethic to just crown the climate it, leave it as is and everybody has the same experience and that's an interesting question i think at, at least at wade's world for it kind of went all over the, the map on that um for a lot of my crowds, i try to just on site and see what would happen cleaned it up so that it was respectable. Uh, but I didn't enhance. Holds. I didn't enhance holds at all. If it was marginal, I'd be like, ah, it's kind of marginal. You know, the tiny hold, you have to do a huge body move to the side. Hey, I think on one of the like DA lines, huge leftward traverse swing to nail a point that's straight down and transition to it, uh, with, with marginal feet that are overhanging. And it's hard to find that hold and it's not ticked. So I, you know, I, in the development process, I tried as much as possible to balance that. So making it replicable and safe is very challenging, uh, especially with tools because they're so damaging to the rock. If you have a generous jug, it's probably not gonna change that much. It might get dug deeper, but if it's on a shallow jug, it might just tear off the wall. And these routes change over time from freeze thaw anyways. So, and, uh, otherwise it would probably be rock climbing route. I mean, if it wasn't for the choss, so. The freeze thaw is part of it that makes it exciting because it changes a little bit over time. That's why we like to go ice climbing, right? It's not the same line at the time. It changes subtly and it's exciting. You're like, I don't know what's gonna happen. Let's see how it formed this year. Um, And that's fun. And in a way, through freeze thaw, the same thing happens on those mixed and dry line. Um, but when you're developing, that's a big question. Like, do I drill it a little bit deeper so that it doesn't blow out so you can still get through it? Um, was it nutcracker? I think recently in Bozeman fell apart and I think got rebuilt it at this point, but you know, you can't do the line if it fails like that catastrophically Rockfall happens or, but should you intentionally modify the holds? It becomes more of a question of sustainability. Uh, and I think that's what a lot of folks don't realize is if it's really thin and marginal. Like I, I put up a bunch of lines saying they're thin and marginal and I don't know how they are right now. Like I haven't been back in years. Uh, I need to go back and assess it and see if it needs to be kind of revamped to stay in the character of that line. An interesting thing about development where it's not bolted is the question of this is unsafe as a mixed line. Should it get changed in some way to afford fixed protection? Um, I think I climbed a line that was a few years ago, uh, where I didn't really have good protection pretty much the whole way. Cause it was so cold and ice was fracturing and it was too thin and I put in some pens and the pens were on crumbly flakes. So I pretty much did the whole thing and it was like all just a chunk show. Uh, got through it. It was fine. But somebody was like later, Hey, do you, do you mind if I go and I, I put a bolt in there because it's unprotected. It's like, yeah, that's, that's great. But that's part of the process I think is, is asking someone and seeing what the ethic is. It's checking in with each other and it changes for each crack. I think the, the ethics act, let's say the hall of justice in Colorado are different from those of Wayne's world, which is different from North Carolina, you know, everywhere has different ethics. And in dry tooling, the most important thing is you talk to the community that's using the rock and make sure you're not taking away from the actual rock climbing because it's super damaging. You know, you wouldn't just go to El Cap and and, uh,
0: just
1: let it rip on the nose. That'd be a travesty. And that's why I think it's so important for people to check in with the landowners and with the climbing community as stakeholders to be like, Hey, like, what are we thinking? Like, are we gonna rebolt this area? And we're gonna turn it into sport climbing again, or is it this area dead, you know, for whatever reason, uh, fires happen. People put fires underneath climbs and roofs all the time, and it destroys a route. It destroys the rock. It destroys the protection that's there. It might have to get totally rebolted. So, um, is anybody gonna go do that defunct 514? Or is it reasonable to turn it into trad, and crag? And the only way you know is by talking to people. You can't just make that decision by yourself. That's insane. Um, and in Wade's world, I think there was, uh, specifically in that area, there was questions of, is it bolted? Is it all trad? If you can go all trad, is it mixed where you might have some bolts and some trad. And with the intention of who it's for, uh, to be able to learn and grow, it's like, yeah, just, just bolt the area. You know, don't have like a single can that you take on the, on the route. That'd be, that'd be weird. It's like the only route that has cans on. Um, so, and, and that applies for, um, red house, which is the companion Crag, which is like the D seven to D 12 zone. You know, there, there might be a thin hairline crack, but you're not expected to take a ball nut up and, and put it, in. you know, the idea was to have a place from like D three to D 12, where you can go out or go try and fail safely so that you can, go do the next thing, which is the trad climbing version of that, which we have in Washington state, you know, you gotta go find it. It does exist. You know, there's hard, there's hard trad lines out there. So it's a, just understanding what it is. I think for developers, it's really important. It's an accessible step that's allowing people to learn. And with that, it kind of guided that decision-making of, oh, we have to have top rope thinkers. That makes sense. You have to be able to get to the top rope thinkers. So we spent all this time making hand lines and you know, making sure it all worked out routes were labeled. So you knew where you were going and not just going off the lip into oblivion because then people wouldn't do it. But when you have this metal piece, Wayne did this, Wayne's like, oh, you know, it says, you know, D seven cold therapy and it's on a metal tag. People can do it now. They have the information. The barrier's not there anymore. They can feel free to repel onto it and go do the thing they know they're gonna do. Um, yeah. So I think that's awesome. One of the, the challenges we found in development was who it's for. And for me and a lot of developers, it's about the next people who are gonna climb the line. It's not about you. It's not about you being like, oh, I climbed it. It doesn't need protection. Like otherwise, you know, you might solo a lot of routes, and not even put in any bolt, but the, the, the point is it's replicable. Somebody can go out and do the dance and share and grow with somebody else. And that's the point. There are some climbers out there. We had some developers that, um, wanted to just climb the line for themselves and didn't take as much time to be thoughtful about what if someone falls here, will it cut the rope, the serious concern in development. Like where are you putting your protection? Is it safe for somebody to fall? What what's the consequence? Will somebody hit something get hurt? Um, and, and I think you really have to be thoughtful about those things. If you're, if you're an ego climber or, or if you're trying to develop for other people, that intention is really clear. I think the last thing that kind of came up for development is, is silly. And most climbers don't care about, but it's not like red tag debates. If something's tagged, don't climb it. If there's fixed hardware on a route and it's red tagged, it's for safety. It's like, Hey, don't do it. Like it's not ready yet. Hasn't been clean. Like, even if you're ready to take the risk, there might be other compelling reason not to do it, but also like a sign of respect for the person who put in, you know, the hundreds of dollars or whatever it is and the time to do that effort. Like you just leave it alone. That's just a courtesy. Um, and it, and I think red tag debates are, are kind of silly all throughout, but if it's somebody's effort or their art project, you know, like let them have their own project until they're ready to share, cuz they're doing it for everybody else. They're not doing it for themselves. I think that's an important thing to remember.
0: Well, thank you very much Tom for, for chatting today and for all that you're doing and in the community. Around Seattle, and then and then in the larger dry tooling world. If you enjoyed this episode, consider supporting us on Patreon. Even one dollar a month helps. You can find us at Patreon, p a t r e o n dot com, forward slash ice ice beta. Thanks so much.